Um, uh, I've received from the ministry of this pulpit, as Keith said, for many years and what has felt like millions of sermons. Um, so to be standing right here and to be opening this Bible and to be speaking to this church is a tremendous blessing. So thank you. Thank you in advance for receiving me. We're continuing in our series in 1 Peter. So if you please open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 7. It's 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray before we begin. Oh God, we, we want to hear your voice. So Lord, would you anoint this foolish thing called preaching. And Lord, would you use it to bring healing to us. Lord, to bring your ministry to us. Lord, we, we do not want merely human words entering our ears, but Lord, would your spirit be speaking to us? And God, God, may we be listening, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, every now and then we'll have a name tag Sunday. Uh, we'll have an open house and there will be ladies passing out name tags for all of us to wear. And this is not only useful for getting introduced to new people, but it's also helpful for remembering the names that we forget, even though we've talked to the person a dozen times. You know, on your average Sunday, we all have our ways of getting by. Hey, buddy. How's it going, dude? But, but not name tag Sunday. No, no, then we're confident. Then we can approach anyone and hold a conversation with them like we went to the same preschool. And, and our text this morning is, is designed to remind us of something that is easy to forget. In, in fact, it's, it's something we tend to conceal about ourselves. It's the fact that we are needy. So this morning is name tag Sunday and all of us are wearing name tags that say, hello, my name is needy. In this, in this passage, Peter sets us before a mirror and, and he wants us to stand face to face with our needs so that the result is a humble dependence upon God and a sacrificial love toward others. And he does this by showing us three things. The posture of need in verse 5. The promise for need in verse 6. And the presence in need in verse 7. When we read verse 5, there are, there are two interpretive questions that immediately confront us. One, who are the younger that Peter addresses? And, and two, who are the older or the elders? Well, Peter uses a masculine adjective for the younger here, and its usage elsewhere indicates that this is intended to distinguish men from women. So, so Peter is specifically addressing young men here. 
And elders, in context, refers to church leaders, to pastors or shepherds. If you let your eyes just kind of scan the first four verses of this chapter, if you remember Jeff's message from a few weeks ago, it becomes clear whom Peter's talking about. But, but all that's to say that Peter singles out one particular group in the church, the young men. And then he directs them toward another particular group in the church, the elders. And then he supplies a verb that is to define their relationship. It's it's one of Peter's favorite verbs, submit. Peter uses this word six times in this letter, and here is the final occurrence. Now, if you like to ask questions when you're reading the Bible, and I hope you do, you're probably wondering, well, why does Peter single out young men here? Well, because young men are uniquely needy. Problem is, they believe exactly the opposite about themselves. Uh, Young men, like young women, lack knowledge and experience. But unlike young women, we are totally clueless of the fact that we lack knowledge and experience. Young men have certain weaknesses that make them prone to specific temptations. The Bible has a category for the the sins of youth, and, and Paul warns Timothy to flee youthful passions. What are these? Well, often young men lack discernment. They they don't think in sufficiently nuanced categories. The Bible calls this zeal without knowledge. And so they're prone to doctrinal error or theological imbalance. Young men act on the information they perceive yet fail to consider what they're not perceiving. Young men infrequently possess the mercy and the patience that comes with age. Young men are captivated by sensuality, amazed by trinkets, these days characterized by irresponsibility, and so are tempted by worldliness and materialism. And and what it comes down to is this, young men love to be independent. Youth is the incarnation of an attitude of independence, which is why Peter turns young men around and he puts a tool in their hand called submission. Young men, be subject to the elders. Young men, we, we need church leaders. How are young men to submit to elders? Well, the, the same way the rest of the church is called to submit to him, by, by heeding the word that they proclaim with their life and speech. That, that is the issue of submission. Am, am I responding with humble obedience to God's word? You know, some of you might begin to get a little nervous when we start talking about submitting to church leaders. You know, does that mean that pastors are here to control our lives, to tell us what job we should take, where we need to put our kids in school. Well, well, they might help us think through those things and come to make wise decisions, but ultimately the authority of elders is not intrinsic but derived. It, It comes from this book. The question is, are you submitting to them when they bring you this book, whether in a a sermon or a counseling time or a phone conversation or an email. Elders have no intrinsic authority, but when they open the Bible 
and they teach from it faithfully, and they, they exhort us to repentance and faith, God is speaking. And young men, we better be listening. Here's a, here's a frightful thought. How many, how many sermons have I heard that have made little to no impact, little to no difference on my life, on my pursuits and decisions and relationships? Now, in case the rest of you are feeling neglected, right now Peter then widens his lens to include all of you. Look at verse 5 again. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So young and old, elders and congregation, men and women are all to be characterized by humility. That, that should be the atmosphere of the church, the, the temperature among us. You know, this week the weather's kind of taken a turn. It's been kind of nice, but for a while it seemed like we kind of skipped spring and went from one month of winter toward eight months of Dante's Inferno. And, you know, around this time of year, one, one of the most magical experiences you can have, and by magical I mean like sing a song in a Muppets movie magical, is to, is to step out of the New Orleans heat into a well-air-conditioned building. And, and that should be what it's like coming in here on Sundays. It should be like coming out of a world of hot-headed, self-serving pride and into a, a cool breeze of humility. And not just Sundays, but that, that should distinguish every attitude and relationship among us. Well, easier said than done. I don't know about you, but Sometimes I feel like humility is a foreign language. Really, sometimes I think I'm more likely to start speaking Chinese than to react humbly. I, I get up in the morning and I get dressed in pride and I go to bed at night and I lay my head on my pillow and pride is there to greet me. Thoughts about my own importance, comparisons, how I measure up to other people. I mean, who daydreams about how other people can be honored, <laughs> how their contributions can be highlighted. And, and with this experience, humility can seem so unreachable, so intangible. But, but note this, Peter gives concrete expression to humility here, that there's a direction to it. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That, that's the orientation for humility. It gestures otherward. It, it loves to be lowered in whatever way necessary for God to be exalted and others to be served. A, a humble church is a church that is eager to serve, ready to embrace discomfort in order to love willing to consider our desires as insignificant compared to the needs of our brothers and sisters, prepared to overlook offenses, assume the best about people's motives, care for their feelings, protect their reputations, willing to be neglected if it means that others are built up. We are to clothe ourselves in humility in the same way 
that Jesus clothed himself in a towel and stooped to wash his feet, the feet of his disciples. The same way that he clothed himself in human flesh and stooped to enter our cursed world. You know, Peter doesn't go here explicitly, but, but there is a Christological and, and a Trinitarian reference point for humility. And that's Paul's precise point in Philippians chapter 2 when he's calling the, the church to a life of humility. In verse 4 he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus submitted to the Father. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count functional equality with God the Father as something also to be grasped, but instead he chose incarnation, leading to death. There's a certain shape to humility, and it's the shape of the cross. Well, Peter then grounds our posture toward others in God's posture toward us. And he quotes Proverbs 3:34 again in verse 5: For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So pride receives God's gracious opposition, but humility receives his gracious favor. Why does God give grace to the humble? Is that because there's, there's something deserving within the humble that inclines God toward them? Some sort of worth that, that makes him want to give them grace? Absolutely not. It, it's exactly the opposite. It's the humble who realize they have nothing to bring. It's the humble who realize they are morally bankrupt. It's, it's the humble who are aware of their need. It's the humble who seek help. And, and that's the essence of faith looking away from yourself in utter dependence upon God. Wayne Grudem says in his commentary in 1 Peter, why does God act this way? Apparently because the proud, those who are haughty or arrogant, thinking of themselves as more important than everyone else, trust in themselves while the humble trust in God and God delights in being trusted. Humility is being desperate for grace. Let me raise a deeply philosophical question for you. What is the purpose of a cup? Uh, imagine you were terribly thirsty, and so I, I handed you a packet of those red Solo cups, you know, the ones I'm talking about. And what if you took those cups and then you stacked them up like the Tower of Babel as a monument to yourself? Does, does that help your thirst? No. But what if you took that cup and you lifted it up and you said, please, can I have some water? Now you're ready to receive. God gives grace to the humble because the, the humble are positioned to receive grace. They're, they're painfully aware of their need for it. This is the contrast that Jesus gives in Luke 18 about the parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee. And, and this parable is not just about 
the fact that, you know, pride is nasty and humility is nice. This is a parable about grace. The Pharisee lifts his arrogant hands to heaven in feigned gratitude, boasting about his accomplishments, and the tax collector beats his breast and begs for mercy. And, Jesus says, went home justified, receiving grace. Now we know from the rest of the Bible that it's only God's grace that produces this kind of humility in us to begin with. It's only God's grace that, that transform us, transforms us from a prideful opponent of God to someone who, who lays hold of him with empty hands. In other words, faith is a gift, Ephesians 2.8 or put another way, God takes out the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh in Ezekiel 36. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. It's, it's both. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Are you desperate for grace? It's in moments of significant need that desperation begins to accurately describe us. Some of you have been praying more these days than you ever have in your life. The earth has shifted and, and something you hold dearly has begun to slide away from you. And in prayer, you, you reach out to grab it and you look up to God with eyes that say, please don't let this get away from me. It could be your health, it could be your marriage, it could be your teenage children, it could be your elderly parents. But you're desperate. You're humble because you're needy. And God is ready to give grace. And that brings us to the promise in this text. In verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice this, this is an inference from verse 5. God gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is, again, the language of submission. It, it is submitting to his rule. It's an acknowledgement of his right to be in charge. It's an awareness of his power. It's not prideful accusation about his decisions, but a, a humble trust in his wisdom. But God's mighty hand is not only there to kind of hold us in place under his rule. That same mighty hand, Peter says, will, will one day grasp us in his powerful grip and lift us up to a place of exaltation. That, that, that's the promise for need. It won't always be this way. There's a dramatic reversal in store. But, but please note, there is a future tense about this. You know, we've said this before, but the message of the Bible isn't about your best life now, but your best life later. 
If there's something we are in need of in Christianity today, it is a theology of the proper time. Much of Christian literature is about how, how God wants us to be happy, how he's there to make us successful, how he's here to kind of help us fulfill our dreams. And we read this, we hear about this, and we, and we look at our life and it, it doesn't match up. We need a theological category for eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Peter sets up this contrast in the beginning of his, his letter in, in chapter 1, verse 5. He says that we are the ones who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Eschatos. He's talking about eschatology here. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see the comparison here. There is a salvation, a rescue, a deliverance that's going to be revealed at the last time, the proper time. But, but now, for a little while, we are grieved by a whole slew of trials. Peter's ultimate reference point for the proper time here is the return of Christ. That's when God will make everything right. That's when he will correct every injustice. That's when he will restore the created realm. That's when he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's when we will live in a perfect world with perfect relationships in which we are perfectly understood. God will exalt us then. Until then, we're humbled. We have a broken marriage, and it's humbling. We experience depression, emotional numbness. Other people don't understand why we act this way, and it's, it's humbling. We, we lack deep and meaningful relationships, and it's humbling. And we look to God and he doesn't lift us out of the humbling situation we're in. And so we give him time, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, but then we find that we're still unhappy. We're still lonely. We're still single. We're still overweight. We're still infertile. We still have kids who don't respect us. And that's when we begin to get weird. Actually, it's when we begin to get dangerous. It's like the claustrophobia effect. I don't know about you, but if you put me in a small box, or you put me under a blanket and you hold me down, I'm ready to kill you. <laughs> I am not happy. And if we feel like our situation is smothering us for too long, if we feel trapped... That's when we're ready to act. That's when we're ready to take things in our own hands and, and come up with our own plan, our own solution, whether or not it's within God's wisdom and boundaries. Don't be disillusioned. It's not the proper time yet. 
In the meantime, we are, as Peter opened this letter, elect exiles. We are away from the homeland. We are wandering in the wilderness. We are pilgrims along the way. That is the characteristic description of this life. And as Peter said in the last chapter, do not be surprised when you find that to be true. Now, that's, that's not to say that God, in his mercy, doesn't sometimes intrude into our circumstances with blessings that are a foretaste of the age to come. He does. Thank God he does. God gives us previews. He'll sometimes lift our head just enough so that we, we catch a glimpse of the horizon of the new earth. He brings healing. He brings restoration. He brings remedy. But not always. And never fully yet. What can we do as we wait? Well, Peter tells us, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's probably citing Psalm 55 here, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, some of your Bibles might begin a new sentence here with verse 7. Uh, Going to cast your cares on him. But this is actually the same sentence as verse 6. For you grammar nerds out there, and I know there are several of you, this, this is a participle right here. Okay, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, comma, casting all your anxieties on him. Humble yourselves, casting your cares. You see the point? Casting cares is an expression of humility. Now we tend to think the opposite. We, we tend to think that the humble thing to do is just to be kind of, not make a big deal about my need. Just kind of act like it's not there. Just take things in stride. Don't make too much noise about my problems. That's what we think humility is, but perhaps Douglas Wilson can help us. He says, some forms of pride are obvious, at least when they occur in the lives of others. That's funny. Arrogance, boasting, haughtiness, and snobbery are all fairly easy to see. Consequently, we tend to equate pride with such glaring manifestations, but there is another form of pride which is doubly dangerous. It is a pride which masquerades as humility. And that's what we see in this text. Peter's saying, clinging to cares is a form of pride. Don't, don't be proud. God doesn't want a proud church layered with concerns in this life and deceived into thinking they can carry them. Why else has he given us a savior? God desires to carry the weight of our burdens. God has not promised us a life that is free of concerns. You won't find that idea anywhere in the Bible. But what he has promised us is his availability to us in our concerns. He is, as Psalm 46 one says, a very present help in time of trouble. John Piper says about George Mueller that when he was asked how he could be so calm in the middle of a hectic day with so many uncertainties, 
in the orphanage, he said something like, I rolled 60 things onto the Lord this morning. It will be a church filled with people who think like this. What can you give to the Lord this morning? What is weighing you down this week? My guess is that whatever it is, you're already aware of it. It's already on your mind. You've probably been thinking about it instead of listening to me. <laughs> it's, it's easy to feel the weight of our need. It's also easy to forget that God is the one who carries us in our burdens. Notice that Peter provides a reason why we should cast our anxieties on the Lord. It's rooted in the fact that he loves us and is ready to be merciful to us. Casting your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's a fact. God cares for us in Christ. And perhaps the Apostle Peter here remembers the time when Jesus was asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm and the, the disciples cried out, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? What a question. Don't you care? But perhaps it's one that is familiar to us. God, I'm heartbroken. Don't you care? God, I'm overlooked at work. Don't you care? God, my husband no longer loves me. Don't you care? God, I have no idea how I'm going to pay this bill. Don't you care? Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. He cares. We are not promised the absence of need. What we are promised is the presence of God in our need. There's a parallel text to 1 Peter 5 in, in James chapter 4. And it's at this point in the passage that James says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He, he will draw near. And Peter's way of saying this in chapter 4 when he's talking about suffering is this in verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the pain, in the hurt, God is there. The spirit is resting on you. He will not abandon you. He is not repelled by your circumstances. He is inclined toward you. John Flavel wrote a couple centuries ago, because God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. Now, there's an interesting thought. Why would we be tempted to think that God would forsake us because we're low? Well, perhaps if we contributed in some way to our lowliness. Perhaps our lowly circumstances, our anxieties, are not merely the result of living in a fallen world. Maybe they've come about because we're fallen people. You know, the cares that we bring to Christ, they include regrets. 
They include mistakes. They include lost years, the forsaken pursuits, the sins of youth. They include failures that we are unable to get out of our mind. Ultimately, we can cast our cares upon Christ because the Father has cast our sin upon Christ. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ took every one of our concerns, every one of our regrets, every one of our sins, and he threw them upon his back in the form of a cross. And he carried them up the hill called Calvary. And he was crushed under their weight. And they buried him in the ground. And he rose again, leaving them behind in the grave. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? Do you know the Christ who carries burdens? Do you know the Christ who can take away sin, both its weight and its stain? If not, let me introduce you to him with his own invitation. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for the soul. That's the greatest human need. More important than our Awareness of the turmoil of our circumstances is our recognition of the restlessness in our souls. You realize that on the inside you're not right. Jesus speaks to the weary and the heavy laden, to those who who tire of the effort to somehow be good enough to please God, to those who are burdened by sin and the reality of God's judgment to those who are pressed down by guilt and shame. Jesus says, come. But he's lowly of heart. And he invites those who deny themselves, abandon their self-salvation project and grasp him with empty hands. In other words, repentance and faith. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you aware of your need for it? Let's pray. Oh God, we love exhortations like this. We love commandments like this. Find rest. Trust in Christ. Fear not. Do not be anxious. God, help us to obey them. These are not wishful thinking. They are rooted in deeply 
theological realities. Lord, they're, they're rooted in deeply experiential realities. He cares for you. That's the gospel. That's good news that we know. Lord, would you impress it upon our hearts? We pray.